On the afternoon of March 30, 1981, President Ronald Reagan gave a speech at the Washington Hilton Hotel. After finishing the speech, he exited the hotel. At 2.27 p.m., Reagan was about to get into his limo when a 25-year-old man named John Hinckley Jr. aimed his revolver at the president and unleashed a barrage of bullets. One of those bullets ricocheted off the limo and struck Reagan, grazing his rib and lodging in his heart. In an instant, Secret Service agent Jerry Parr reacted, grabbed Reagan by the shoulders, and threw him and himself into the limo. When Parr saw Reagan coughing blood, he realized the president, who, at 69 years old, was the oldest president up to that point, had been injured and ordered the driver to go to George Washington University Hospital. Thankfully, President Reagan ended up surviving this harrowing incident. Agent Parr likely saved Reagan's life, first by getting him out of the line of fire, and second, getting him to the hospital so quickly. He was hailed as a hero and was given a commendation from the U.S. Congress and a presidential rank award for meritorious executive, among many other awards. One of my favorite stories to tell is how Agent Parr saved President Reagan's life, changing the course of history but also about his own life story. It turns out that Parr became interested in being a Secret Service agent when, as a child, he watched the 1939 movie Code of the Secret Service. The star of the movie? You guessed it, Ronald Reagan. It's one of those great ironies in American history. The man who saved President Reagan's life was inspired by a movie President Reagan made. It's a story I wanted to learn more about and share. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Hello, we have this superb podcast called We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by Billy Joel. It is the most original, fascinating, and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. Oh, pretty darned random. And we are joined by some pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckrick. And me, Tom Fordyce. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel.
Today, we're honored to have Agent Parr's widow, Carolyn Parr, on our podcast. She married Jerry in 1959, and they were together for about 55 years until he passed away in 2015. Mrs. Parr, thank you for being a guest on our show. Thank you for inviting me. So first, I have to ask, when did you learn about Jerry being inspired by that movie? Was that something that everyone knew that knew him? No, no, I I don't remember that. Um, I guess he just casually dropped it at some point um, before pro- before he saved the president. I mean, I think you know when people would ask him when how did you get into the Secret Service, it was something he would mention once in a while. You know, well, I saw this movie sure. and it inspired me, and I thought it would be a great career. He had another sure, career yeah. before that, though. He was a he was a power lineman, and uh, that mm-hmm. was a dangerous job in Miami, especially with all the hurricanes. And he he uh, he liked danger. He he didn't exactly court it. He didn't you know jump out of airplanes for fun or anything like that. But um, it made him feel alive, I think, to to uh, be in a risky job. So the Secret Have Service s- really attracted him. Have have you seen the movie Code of the Secret Service? Yes. Yes. Um, How is it? Ironically, <laughs> I I read that President Reagan hated the movie, so Yeah, the president said it's the worst movie he ever made. <laughs> yeah. And it was cheap That's too. So it was it, they made it for very low budget. Um it's okay. I mean, it, you know, if I didn't have a personal connection to it, I don't think I would have looked for it particularly. Sure. Now, you mentioned that uh, your husband was from Miami. Uh, Where are you from? Uh, Well, I met him in Miami. I grew up in North Florida. Well, I didn't grow up there. I was born in North Florida, Palatka, Florida, a little town where my parents lived. Um, And my father was with the Army Engineers during World War II. He was a civilian. And so we got transferred to uh, New England. He was working in Boston, and there were no places to live in Boston. So we lived in Worcester, Massachusetts, and he commuted back and forth. Uh, that's when I was three, and, and I lived there till I was nine. And we moved back to Miami. The war was over, and uh, they bought a house in Miami, and that's where I grew up from the time I was nine till I went away to college. And I went to college in Florida, too, at Stetson University in North Florida, D-Land. So I'm a Florida girl. How, how did you and Jerry meet? Um, kind of a, like a blind date. Um, I was, I was, had rented a small furnished apartment with my college roommate, uh, for the summer because my parents had moved to the Keys and there were no jobs there and I needed to work to stay in college. So we rented this little apartment and the first day we were still unpacking and moving in and these two guys knocked on our door and said, uh, introduced themselves. One of them was the son of the woman who owned the apartment house and she had said two college girls just moved in down the hall and so he got his buddy Jerry <laughs> and said, let's go meet him. And so uh, they were cute and we were standing there, you know, completely unprepared for this and so they said, you want to go get a pizza and that sounded 
pretty non-threatening. And so we said, okay. So that's how I met him. And then he just kept coming back. <laughs> that's wonderful. And you said, you just mentioned that he worked for a power company in 1962. He was a lineman. So he's probably on the front lines responding to people's power problems. Um, yes. So how did that transition into the Secret Service? Uh, I, I read that he joined in 1962. How did that, you yeah. know, he had been inspired. It was, was it like, it was a lifelong ambition, was it? Not really that much. It was just something he thought it would be fun. But he also was inspired to be a power lineman. He used to see these guys up on the poles after hurricanes and things. And he hadn't he hadn't gone to college. When he finished high school, he he had a very um, dysfunctional family, I guess you could say, as a child growing up. And nobody expected him to go to college. Nobody in his family had ever gone to college. So getting this line work was a thrill for him. Um, and he kind of given up, I think, on doing anything professional. Uh, but he did take a and then he joined the military during Korea, and he took some classes and decided he really was interested in learning, and he liked reading books, and he kind of got into wanting more education, not for a new career, but just for his own growth, personal growth. So uh, when I met him, he had finished the equivalent of a year and a half of college. He was going to he had what he got in the service, and then he was going to night school at the University of Miami. Uh, and I was uh, getting ready to be a college senior. And um, so we really didn't seem, we were the odd couple. We did not seem like a fit at all. Um, but my father was a blue-collar worker. He was a, a, a carpenter. And I had always grown up with great respect for people who worked with their hands and their minds. And uh, so it didn't put me off that he was a lineman, but he was also six and a half years older than I and had been married before. So that was like, oh, this guy is dangerous. <laughs> so um, that actually, uh, the first thing my mother said after she met him was, well, he looks experienced. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a compliment. Hopefully, I didn't know she was saying, you know, watch out or what. But um, yeah, I was very attracted to him, and uh, he was sophisticated in a lot of ways that I wasn't. Um, so we had a kind of a whirlwind courtship that summer, and I, then I had to leave to go back to college, which was. 300 miles away, I guess, more or less. And uh, I wasn't sure this romance was going anywhere, but uh, we wrote and he drove up to see me two or three times and I'd come home on holidays and we'd be together. And yeah, it just got deeper and deeper. Uh, so. Sure, after, yeah. Yeah, at the end of, after a year, um, I was ready to get married and he wasn't. So he, he was, you know, he, been burned and he was just he wanted he wanted to be engaged but he didn't want to set a date and uh so i had a fellowship to go to vanderbilt university that was a three-year fellowship and would pay me a salary along with free tuition and for 
three years. So I would have a big start toward a PhD if I wanted one. And I was thinking I might like to be a college professor at that point. So I said, look, you got to decide because I'm going to leave and go to Nashville. And he said, I can't decide right now. So I left and went to Nashville and I figured I was never going to see him again. And six weeks later, he said, I can't live without you. I'm going to quit my job and <laughs> move up there. <laughs> so that's how that happened. <laughs> yeah, that's wonderful. And so uh, about two, three years in, he gets into the Secret Service. What was the process like that, uh, that you recall for him to, you know, as far as the train, the application and then the training for the Secret Service? Well, when he joined me in Nashville, he finished college there. He, um, I was in graduate school, and he was going to Peabody, which was the educational branch of, uh, of Vanderbilt. He thought he'd maybe be a teacher. And uh, so he, when he got ready to graduate, all these different companies and government agencies and all were send representatives to interview seniors. And he saw that the CIA was coming and the Secret Service was coming and both of them excited his spirit. So he didn't, he also, he didn't want to work behind a desk in an office. He wanted to be outdoors or about, you know, moving around. So he went to those interviews and both of them ended up offering him a job. And so he, he, took the Secret Service job. But he, he was interviewed in Nashville by this agent who uh, said to him, told him a little bit about what the service was like, and then he said to him, um, what, so why do you want to go into the Secret Service? And Jerry said, it's safer than what I've been doing. <laughs> and that was true because he'd been a pallbearer eight times for guys that had been electrocuted or fallen off poles or... And uh, he said it in a kind of casual way. The guy was so taken aback. What have you been doing? And so <laughs> he told him, um, and they laughed about it. But um, so the guy recommended him. But the big issue for him was age because he was 32 and that was the deadline. That was the oldest they would hire an agent. Now it's I, it's a, gone higher than that. It's 35 or 40 maybe even um and his birthday was in september so they couldn't start him with a new year until october 1st but they got they decided if they had him signed up that he was hired and you know so uh, he, he was actually 33 when he started um and his first assignment was new york which we had a new baby we had a baby born in march before that and um, so I had left my program at Vanderbilt and had been teaching high school by then uh, and had to quit that when I was got hugely pregnant. Um, so we moved up there to New York City with a baby, and his starting salary there was under $6,000. Now, this was 1962, so it wasn't what it is now, the cost of living. But believe me, we we were we found out later we were eligible for food stamps on what he made. But we, and I promptly got pregnant again, so uh, I couldn't work. Um, 
we were poor. Uh, so poor, I, and plus the the long hours he was working. I'm sure the the long yeah. stressful hours. Yeah, it it only got a lot worse when he got in protection. But in New York, he had a stressful job. They were running down forged checks and government bonds and counterfeiting, and he had to go in all kind of neighborhoods. And at one point, he went in and knocked on a door, and this woman said, "Come in." She was a forger, and she'd had a long rap sheet for stealing. They just steal checks out of the mailbox and stuff, social security checks and things like that. They these People mostly weren't violent, but they lived in poor neighborhoods, many of them. But, um, anyway, he walked in and she said, come in. And he thought, oh, is this an ambush? What is this? Um, but he opened the door and walked in and she was giving birth to her sixth child right there, <laughs> unassisted. <laughs> and <laughs> she apparently had called the ambulance and they... She thought that's who he was when he knocked on the door. But he, he said, oh, excuse me, ma'am. <laughs> and he oh, decided not goodness. to arrest her, even though he'd been looking for her for weeks. <laughs> wow. And and so, uh, and not everyone might know this, but the Secret Service, in addition to protecting the president, they also take on counterfeit crimes, which is was right. one of their original missions. So that's what he was doing. And then how did he transition into the, the protection side of things? Well, all of the field offices did the counterfeiting and stolen or forged checks business. So they were just regular law enforcement people with that specialty. Um, but any time the protective details needed extra people, which is very frequently, they would tap the people uh, out in the field to come and do it. For example, well, one thing they also investigated was any uh, threatening letters that came from their area, which were a lot of letters. Kennedy got letters, Boku letters, and he was president then. A lot of people hated him for all kind of different reasons. Uh, so they would investigate that. But then uh, Jacqueline Kennedy loved to come to New York, and they had a regular suite and a hotel there. And so whenever she would come, they'd get Jerry to go stand post outside her hotel room door or meet, meet her airplane or something like that. And uh, then sometimes Jack would come with her, and so he met him. But Jerry was always at the tail end of the protection, but he was around it. And... Uh, he liked it, but his boss thought he was not White House material. He said he's a great field agent, but he's not White House material because they figured he wasn't sophisticated enough. He had a Southern accent, and we didn't have a lot of money, and we had two suits, and he just alternated them. And the coat he had from Nashville was a, was a London fog, but it wasn't lined. And in that New York weather, you know, he he we didn't have money for clothes. We hardly had money for anything and uh, so he wasn't sophisticated in the way those guys were and so they thought he wouldn't be White House material which is one of the great ironies of his life <laughs> yeah no kidding the Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history but what happened next my name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. 
Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siècle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. So Jerry worked with, he protected several vice presidents, he protected several presidents, uh, yeah. What were his impressions of, of those people? I know that he uh, started with uh, it was Vice President. Uh, I'm sorry, Vice President Humphrey and, yeah. and so on and so forth. So, yeah, what what were his uh, you know, he got to see them in, in different situations. What did he think about them? Yeah. Um, yeah. The details he was assigned to where that's what all I did was um, Humphrey and Agnew and. Ford and all vice presidents and then Mondale while he was a vice president. And, uh, and then he went from there to the white house detail. So he had never been assigned to another president until he was in charge of one. So that was, uh, but he had a great reputation that he had built over the years, uh, as a leader and, uh, as an expert on advanced work and, um, as a guy who would work hard and would do whatever he was told. And he had a lot of creative imagination that they had to use with Humphrey because Humphrey was president in the, I mean, was a vice president in 1968. And Johnson was president, but there was so much violent demonstration against the war in Vietnam that Humphrey, Johnson just basically stayed in the White House, hunkered down, and he sent Humphrey out to everything, uh, all kinds of invitations to speak and colleges and everywhere he went, there were riots almost. Um, so the guys who were assigned to Humphrey in those years, and there weren't very many of them. I think they only had like 18 or 20 guys on the whole detail. They, they just worked day and night. And he traveled to Vietnam and they, um, all over Europe and every, they didn't even get paid for their travel time. They only got paid when they were actually on duty. And then they worked hours way beyond that. And there was a rule uh, that federal, I guess because people had padded the, their work or something at some point that you could only be paid for a certain percentage of your, overtime. So he and all the other agents basically donated hundreds of hours of free overtime to the government and were gone so much. Uh, the families, my daughter thought her father worked at the airport. I heard her, I overheard her when she was three telling her neighbor that my daddy works at the airport. <laughs> that's, that's when he saw him when we were sending him off and picking him up. Yeah. Now, uh, did he get to know them personally well? Um, I mean, you know, we're, we're so, I'm sure some were nicer than others. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, he, I'm going to honor his memory because he never would answer that question directly. Um, sure. I can tell you that there are a lot of stories about Johnson that are not particularly favorable. Uh, he didn't like the Secret Service. He didn't like anybody, you know, and he never learned their names. He'd just say, GD Secret Service, come here, or whatever. Um, 
he he wasn't pleasant to work for. But everybody else treated them with respect and were nice to them. Um, the the funny thing is the nicest people to the Secret Service was the person he worked for who probably has the least public respect, and that was Spiro Agnew. Uh, but he and his wife were just so nice to the Secret Service. She'd go to the hospital if a wife had a baby, and she'd bring you food, and she'd... If um, they were standing out in the rain, she'd ask their boss to let them be in the carport, and she'd notice if they were hungry, she'd have somebody or bring them out a sandwich, and they just loved Judy Agnew, and uh, and he was he was just a regular guy to everybody, you know. So uh, they were. It was very upsetting to Jerry personally when. Agnew disgraced himself and had to resign, and Jerry was there in the courthouse when he did. And uh, so I tell that in the book we wrote. The The book is called In the Secret Service. I don't know whether you read it, but it's a true story of the man who saved President Reagan's life. And um, that day was was really interesting because it was the first time that Jerry or any of the agents even believed the stuff they were hearing about the vice president. And then they heard it in court when um, the attorney general recited that they had an agreement, but if they went to trial, they could prove this and this and this and this. And the vice president denied everything but one count. This is part of their agreement. And it was a knowing failure to pay income tax on one year, $29,000 or something. Um, and then he didn't plead guilty, he pled no low contendery. But that's, uh, as you know, means I don't answer. And that's regarded as a, a guilty plea by the courts. I see. Hmm. And uh, yeah. so, so the the penalty they had agreed on was ten thousand dollars, fine. But it, and he had to resign. <laughs> but it was up to the judge to set his punishment. You know, even though the parties can reach an agreement, the judge can set the penalty, and he can set it as different than they've agreed to. So he said. He would have sentenced Agnew to prison if it was up to him, but he was going to honor the agreement since he had great respect for the United States Attorney General. Uh, so Agnew really left in disgrace. But Jerry was with him that night. Now, they didn't just drop him in the middle of the day. I guess the Secret Service stayed with him till he got back home or something. I don't know. And he flew from there to um, California to um, uh, oh goodness, the name is escaping me. The singer that's so famous. Anyway. Uh, uh, Elvis or no, it was uh, the singer. John, uh, the Beatles, John Lennon, Bob Dylan. <laughs> older than that. <laughs> Oh, okay. The um, oh, uh, um, Louis Armstrong, or it'll come to me in a minute. Okay. <laughs> anyway, he was he was a friend, and um, 
Frank Sinatra. Frank oh, Sinatra. of course. Yes. Uh, and it was his house. And Jerry found out that Frank Sinatra gave him the money to pay his fine, his $10,000 fine. Um, because Agnew was unemployed as of that minute. <laughs> and he never had a lot of money. Um, so, and then he got three phone calls that night, Jerry said. Um, one was from Frank Sinatra, who made that offer, and then he came out there. Uh, another one was from Jimmy Carter, who was not yet president. He was, but he knew him through the governor's conference. And I've always wondered what he said. Uh, and the third one was Billy Graham. So um, that's so interesting, the, the variety there of people yeah. who called. And nobody else called him. He was like poison, you know, from then huh. on. Sure. Yeah, that's and fascinating. That, mm -hmm. Yeah. Another interesting thing is that Judy didn't expect him to do that. He did not tell her he was going to resign that day. Oh, wow. so he blindsided her, his own wife. Yeah, she was blindsided, and she that was pretty hard on her because all this time he'd been denying he was guilty, and she believed him. Um, so that was, I didn't find that out till we were writing the book, and I talked to somebody else who had been in the car with them, and he said, you know, she called me that night and asked me, why did he not tell her? She said, I couldn't, I don't know why I didn't tell her, but that's kind of rough. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, uh, you just mentioned a, a fascinating part of American history when Vice President Agnew resigned. Uh, Jerry was a witness to or had experienced many such times in American history. He, so he joined the Secret Service a year before the Kennedy assassination. And it sounded like he was doing mainly the counterfeit crimes during that time. But what was his experience well, during the assassination? I'm sorry. He didn't do counterfeiting. He did the forged checks. Oh, they the forged checks, right. Unit that went undercover and did counterfeiting. They were, that was dangerous, but he didn't do that. Okay. Uh, so, mm -hmm. What was your question? I lost. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. So uh, what was ex his experience during the Kennedy assassination? You said that he, he got to, okay. uh, you know, he, he, saw President Kennedy, Jackie Kennedy, and then, yeah, what was that like? Okay. Well, he had only seen them from afar um, in New York when they would land their plane or when they were in the hotel. He'd see them up close, but he didn't really have uh, any close association with Jack. Although Jackie, one time, she didn't even know his name, and she said, oh, agent, could you lend me $800? <laughs> She wanted to go shopping, and Jack had put her on a budget, and it didn't suit her. And Jerry said he'd never seen $800 in one place in his whole life, and she thought he had it in his pocket, you know. And oh, my goodness. He so said, he, he, she asked him? She just said, he hey. We didn't even know his name. Oh, agent, if you got $800 on you, you could lend me. That's funny. So, uh, wow. Yeah. He... Uh, he said, no, ma'am, I don't. I'm sorry. And the, he didn't know if she was going to be mad at him or not. But he said, Jack would have fired me if I had loaned her $800. <laughs> I'd never seen that money either again. <laughs> um, That's so funny. Yeah. But um, let's see. You wanted to know about the Kennedy assassination. 
Jerry had just been transferred back to Nashville, which he wasn't crazy about doing because he was really enjoying his work in New York, but the cost of living was killing us, and we found out we could buy a house in Nashville for what we were paying for rent and um, in New York, and instead of a one-bedroom apartment, we'd have a three-bedroom house, two-bath house. Um, so he's, and we liked Nashville. We had met there. I mean, we had married there and um, lived there, and so it's cl- closer to home. Yeah. So uh, he took it, but we were in a motel waiting to move into our new house because the person who had sold it to us was an agent who was leaving. And he was sitting there when we all heard about the shooting. We we heard it on our TV set, waiting for a call from them to say, we're out, you can move in. And, uh, And he and his wife were moving everything, and they had the news on, and so... Boy, that that was just so shocking to hear that President uh, Kennedy was shot and died. You didn't know if he died for the first half hour or so, and then they told us that. And uh, Jerry did a crazy thing. He grabbed his gun and ran outside with it. And I said, what are you doing? There's nobody out there. It's dangerous. And so he said, oh, yeah, he came back in. But he just felt like he had to do something. <laughs> um, so... So the people that whose house we were getting said, you know, we can't tear ourselves away and we know you want to move in. So why don't you just come on over here? Our stuff was already there in the garage and we'll watch it together. So we did. We watched it, you know, all that news. Uh, and that was a hard day and a hard week. I mean, people were crying all over the country and... It was shocking. Even if you didn't like Kennedy, he was young and vigorous and everybody kind of liked the family and all the little kids. And it was, it was very hard. Yeah. Yeah, It made him just, I mean, he felt like this was a body blow to the secret service. We may lose protection over this, you know, maybe they'll give it to the FBI or the military uh, maybe I won't have a job next week if that's what happens. Uh, plus, he felt like it was an embarrassment. They should their whole job is to keep the president alive, and he was dead. And so um, that was there was like shame and an embarrassment. And um, and then he knew some of the guys who were there. By then, he had met people all over the country. And uh, he felt so heartbroken for them. They were just dying. I mean, several of them turned into alcoholics over it. Um, And so it was just a really terrible time. Two days later, when he showed up for his Nashville assignment, they sent him to Dallas to be with first the mother of Lee Harvey Oswald and then his widow. She was horrible. <laughs> uh, um, the, the mother? The, the mother, mother was? Marguerite, okay. yeah. The wife mm-hmm. was sweet, but she didn't speak any English. But uh, he was with the mother for about a week, and he couldn't wait to get away from her. Uh, she called herself, she was proud. She called herself a mother in history. 
and she wanted people to come and interview her. And she, she, one guy from the Associated Press or something wanted to take her picture, and she said, well, you'll have to pay me $2,000 to take my picture. So he said, forget it. Uh, <laughs> um, she was just, some women from the church brought some flowers to her uh, one Sunday after after church, and they said, we've been thinking about you and praying for you, and we know this is hard for you, and because her son had been killed, too. Uh, but I think they were just thinking about the whole thing would be hard for her. And so they said, we brought you the altar flowers from this morning. We thought you'd like that. And she just had this awful look on her face. And she said, thank you. And as soon as they left, she threw them in the trash. And she said, I don't want no used flowers. <laughs> she was, as Jerry said, they say in the South, she was a piece of work. Um, he, he said he spent all his time there on the front porch because <laughs> he couldn't stand to be in the house with her. But then he went, then they sent him after a few days to be with um, the widow. The mother didn't know anything. They just left him there until they could question her and see what she knew and she didn't know anything. And so they sent him to be with the widow. And uh, she had two little kids the same age as ours. And Ours were babies then, still. One and a, I guess one was, yeah, six weeks old, and the other one was a year and a half. And he, he said, her babies never cried. And she couldn't underst he couldn't understand that. And he asked the interpreter there who was, she was staying with some friends who spoke Russian, why don't the babies ever cry? And they said, in Russia... The parents train them not to cry by not responding when they cry. They don't feed a baby when it cries. They they wait till it gets quiet, and then they go and feed it. And Or if they fall down or something, they pick them up and dust them off, but they don't respond to their crying. And uh, that was interesting. So I guess Russians don't cry. I don't know if that's still <laughs> true or not. <laughs> Well, it, it's fascinating because, I mean, this is all in the aftermath, uh, just in the immediate days or weeks after the, the assassination. So yeah. here is, you know, national news uh, converging on everything about the Kennedys, but also uh, the Oswald family and, and who yeah. who he was and who they were. And then your husband was, was there with them. So yeah. it, it must have been uh, just oh. a amazing... Well one thing mm -hmm. that was interesting was they couldn't find any. They got it. They got somebody to embalm um, the body, Oswald's body, but they couldn't find any funeral center that would let him be buried there, <laughs> any any cemetery, and and they couldn't find any minister who would conduct services. <laughs> it, it's, it's, so they were so appalled by it. They finally got a minister to come from another part of Texas who said he would do it, but he's not going to say anything nice about the dead man. So he just prayed for the family and they did it. And they had to use newspaper reporters as pallbearers because they couldn't get anybody to be a pallbearer. Nobody wanted near this guy. And, uh, and this is for Oswald's funeral Oswald, and, and everything. Yeah. yeah. To get him buried. Um, and the agents couldn't 
carry the body and put because they wouldn't be able to shoot. They wouldn't have their hands free and they weren't supposed to do that. So some newspaper reporters that were there did it um, just to lift him into the ground. Can you imagine? And and then they were afraid that somebody was going to mess with the body um, because one of the somebody who worked for one of the undertakers had asked, could he cut off a finger and keep it as a souvenir? <laughs> and he didn't do it. But <laughs> they said, oh, my God, you know. So they poured concrete over his body. Um, so it will be hard to break in and get anything. And and your husband was there for that funeral. He, was he there? Yeah, he was there for the funeral. Yeah, he wasn't wow. there for the concrete, but mm-hmm. yeah. Now, uh, your husband was also there for the infamous 1968 Democratic Convention, the one that uh, people my age, you know, when they see documentaries, they see the riots that happen inside the the convention and outside the convention. So what, what was uh, Jerry's experience there? Well, he was assigned to Humphrey, who was going to get the nomination to be president. And uh, there were other candidates in the same hotel. George um, McGovern. McGovern, yeah. Mm -hmm. He was in the suite right above Humphrey. So um, they were, he and Humphrey were standing just looking down at the park. I think this Grant Park where all this riding was going on and uh, he said you could hear thumping it sounded like horses hoofs from up where they were they were on like the 26th floor or something and it was police clubs hitting heads of protesters it was the third day of the riots and they had been separated more or less all that time and then some rioter climbed up on a pole and tore down an american flag and it just the police were already tired and mad and everybody was mad on both sides and they were getting hit with stuff. All things were being thrown at them out of the hotel windows and everywhere. And uh, they just went crazy. And that's when they started beating, beating the rioters and the rioters ran into the hotel. Some of them bloody young people, their heads bleeding, everything wounding. In the meantime, people up in George McGovern's, Booth were dropping furniture and stuff on the police to try to stop them. And the police looked up and they counted. <laughs> Jerry saw them counting the floors up and they raced up there and just beat the tar out of everybody in the suite. Um, <clears throat> were these McGovern uh, staffers? Yeah, McGovern wow. staffers. Wow. And yeah. so they were attacking the police. Yeah. Goodness. From the hotel room. Yeah. Well, they sided with the protesters. McGovern was a peace candidate, if you remember. And uh, I don't know if McGovern was there and was watching him do that, or I don't think Jerry knew, but he knows they just beat the tar out of everybody that was up there. Uh, and he said, Humphrey just looked down and said, oh, my, oh, my, oh, my, because he had been the young people's candidate until he supported Vietnam. And he only supported it because he was the vice president and Johnson supported it. He didn't support it in private. He kept trying to get Johnson to figure out a way to get out. And finally, Johnson just got furious at him and cut him out of all his meetings. So he, uh, he was in a terrible place. And 
he couldn't campaign against the war very well till he at least got the nomination and could make some space between him and Johnson. And he wouldn't get the nomination if he did it before that. And these people were now his enemies, these young people who were getting beat up. And, uh, you know, that that turned out to be true. He had the nomination. But he's, Jerry said he the look on his face was, he just turned pale and like, he knew that was going into all the television sets all over the country and that he was doomed probably because he was going to get blamed for that or associated with it in some way. He went downstairs in the hotel and tried to talk to some of the people that had been hurt and comfort them and help them get medical attention or whatever. But that was only a handful of people who knew he did that. Um, and uh, every every campus they went on, he had scheduled a lot of campuses because he thought that's where he had strength. And every one they went on, they had people who interrupted him, threw things at him, turned their back when he spoke, you know, all kinds of demonstrations except for two schools. And one of them was um, the Mormon school and one of them was a Baptist college. And those are the only two that, where they got polite audiences. Um, it was a very hard time for the Secret Service agents. Horrible. And and they got sent overseas and absolutely no rest. I mean, when they went to Europe, they had stuff thrown on them. And um, Jerry was standing beside Humphrey when he was going into the opera house in Mil- Milan, I guess it was, and or in Rome, I'm not sure which city it was, but it was in Italy. Um, and the the manager of the opera house came out and we shaking hands. Jerry introduced him to Humphrey. And uh, all of a sudden from out of the sky came a bucket of yellow paint and hit both of, not Jerry, Miss Jerry, but it hit Humphrey and the opera guy and just went all over him and, Humphrey spitting out paint, and he turned around and says to this guy, does this happen to you often? <laughs> he had a sense of humor, and he just realized, you know. Wow. That, I guess that, that's all you, you can do at that point. Poor guy. Yeah. There were a lot of Secret Service agents that got closed ruined in that trip <laughs> from things being thrown at them. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcast. Now, I'm sure, you know, your husband was working 
crazy long hours. He was gone a lot. And you were um, at, at the time you guys had uh, three kids, I believe. Uh, yeah. And so you were busy raising the kids. I'm sorry. Yeah. We had two. Let's see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had two kids then. Okay. Okay. We had, and eventually had a third. Yeah. Okay. And so, and you were busy, you know, being a mother. Um, so what was your life like at, at that time? It must've been okay. difficult well, with your husband gone so often. Yeah. I had wanted for a very long time since we were at Vanderbilt and I had this three year fellowship, I kept thinking I have to give this up because I really want to go to law school. I would look over at the law school building that was next to where my classes were. And I realized I was in the wrong place. Um, but I never got to go to law school because I got married. We had kids. We moved and twice, you know, in a year, we spent a year in New York and then came back to Nashville. And who knew where the next place would be? And, well, we did. It was D.C. And uh, so I really just kind of put off the idea of going to law school. But it was always in the back of my head. So... After my two older girls started school, I thought, okay, this is the time. And Jerry was always, you know, you can you can go if you want to. You've been supportive of my career, and it's been hard on you. But I don't know how you're going to do it while I'm still traveling. And I said, I don't know either. And then I got pregnant for the third one. And so I put it off again uh, until she was in kindergarten. And then I thought, man, it's now or never, because I would already be 40 when I graduated. And, you know, it's not the easiest thing in the world to find a job when you're 40 years old and have three kids. And so um, that's what happened. I started law school when I think I was 36. Um, And it was three years, but I had turned 40 when I graduated. Uh, And I wanted to go to court. I really, that's my idea of a lawyer. I wasn't wanting to just look at paperwork all day. Um, But no private firm was going to offer me a job with three kids and a husband and 40 years old. It was hard enough for a female to get a job as a litigator. It was almost impossible in those days. And unless you work for the government as a prosecutor, you could get those jobs. So the IRS offered me a job going to court. Uh, in their field office. And so I took it and I had always done our own income taxes. And I did in law school, take a class in uh, individual income tax and corporate income tax and um, estate tax. So I had a good basic foundation. Um, So I worked for the IRS. That's where I was working when the assassination attempt occurred. Um, okay. I don't, did we talk, we didn't talk about that yet, I guess. No, no. Now, uh, by this time, you had finished your law degree. I um, had, and I was working at the IRS. And okay. my, I was in a, I wasn't in a government office. I was in a government leased office in a private building that's right across the street from the Hilton Hotel. Wow. And so right across the street. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and that was by sheer coincidence. It just 
yeah. happened to be where you were working. Um, yeah. where, where did you go to law school really quickly? Georgetown. Georgetown. Okay. And then you, when you were there, you were, you were doing full-time as a student? I was full-time. Yeah. And, uh, Jerry actually, I still was nervous about him being transferred in the middle of my career. So, or my law school. Uh, so he went to the secret service chief at that point who he was friends with and said, my wife wants to go to law school. She's been accepted at Georgetown. It's a three-year course. Could you promise me that you won't transfer me for three years out of Washington? There are a lot of jobs, though, that you could do within Washington uh, that would be a transfer. Um, there was a field office. There were all the protective details, and there was an inspection uh, department. So he could still be transferred, but not away. And so uh, the chief agreed. So that's when I actually said, yeah, okay, I'm, that's, I'm going. Um, and Jerry had mostly stopped his, the terrible travel by then. This was 1974. So things were calming down in the country. And um, so I went from 74 to 77 when I graduated. And I had three kids. The, the littlest one was in kindergarten, and my next-door neighbor had a child in the same school, so she'd pick her up and give her lunch, and she'd take a nap there, and then I'd come home. So that's how we managed that. The other two were in junior high, yeah, middle school now, I would say. Um, and they they could manage themselves. So... So uh, in 1981, you're working at this at the IRS. You're right across the street from where President Reagan was speaking. So uh, you knew that he was speaking uh, that yeah, day. Yeah, he called me that morning. I had never met him because Jerry Jerry was new to him. You know, he had just been sworn in in January, and uh, we always got invited to some kind of social events at the White House or something, and I would always met everybody else he worked with before. Um, but anyway, he said, well, if you want to come down and stand on the sidewalk when we go in or come out, you know, I can introduce you. And so I thought, that sounds okay. So, but I got on a phone call right before that, and I forgot about it. I was talking to somebody on the phone, and then got off and I wheeled around in my chair and looked out the window thinking about my phone call and I saw that it was raining and then I remembered I saw the cars I saw the road was cut off and there were you know cars and guys around with earplugs and I said oh I miss seeing the president go in well maybe I'll see him come out so I went downstairs and I stood on the sidewalk I was across the street from the hotel, though. I decided not to walk over there for some reason. Thank goodness. <laughs> um, but I just thought to myself, Jerry needs to focus on what he's doing. He doesn't need to be looking for me. And so <clears throat> I'll meet the president some other time. I, I was really thinking about Jerry and his job and his career. And I knew the, the president was, you know, very friendly. And he would have said, oh, sure, I'd like to meet your wife, but it it didn't seem like appropriate to me at that point. So I stayed where I was. So what I saw was I saw them come out. I saw the president wave to the crowd. 
I heard the gunshots. I saw them drop down behind the car. The car sped off, and there were three bodies lying on the sidewalk. All of them face down. And I thought, oh, my God. I knew that was shots. It was not firecrackers. And I thought maybe Jerry was shot because he was right next to the president. I knew the president wasn't one of those bodies or the, the car wouldn't have left. <laughs> um, so I went running across the street saying, Bye, where's my husband? Where's my husband? Up to the first agent, I got his attention. Well, he was carrying an Uzi and he pointed it right at me and said, get back. Uh, he didn't know me and I didn't know his name. And so uh, I wasn't, I was crazy, but I wasn't that crazy. And I could see, see the guy on the sidewalk right in front of me had a bald head. That was James Brady. And Jerry didn't have a bald head. So I knew it wasn't him. So I ran down to try to see who the other two were a little further down the sidewalk. And I couldn't, <coughs> I couldn't see anybody's face. <coughs> so I went back to the first guy. I decided he was my friend now. And I said, I'm Jerry Parr's wife. Where's my husband? And he said, in the car with the man. So I figured, okay, you know, the man is okay. Jerry's okay. Everything's fine. So I stood there for a few minutes shaking violently and crying and uh, felt a hand on my arm. And it was uh, a guy from my office who had heard the commotion and looked out and saw me standing there and went down to get me and uh, <clears throat> helped me back up into the office. And um, so I right away, I called the White House number I had and said, you know, who I was. And they said, as far as we know, the president's okay and Jerry's okay. And so they still didn't know the president was injured. Um, and so I said, who were the three that were shot? And they said, we, we can't tell you that. We'll tell the families. So I still did. I figured I knew some of them, but I only knew one of them. One of them was an agent. One was a policeman. And one was Jim Brady, who I didn't know yet. I maybe had met him. Um, but anyway, that was. Uh, and then I called my children because I knew they'd turn on the TV and go crazy. Um, and sure enough, all the reporters were saying there's three agents have been shot. And. <clears throat> So I got the first one. She was a cheerleader in high school, and they had canceled her practice that day because of the rain. So she was on her way to a job. She was working in a fast food place after school. And I couldn't get her, but I got her boss, and I told him, tell her her father's okay. Um, by then, I was sure Jerry was okay. I don't know why. It's because I thought the president was okay, too. Um, and so... He said, okay, well, in the meantime, she heard on the car radio driving over there, so she pulled into a gas station and borrowed their phone. Nobody had cell phones in those days. And she called me just when I hung up from talking to her boss, and I told her. So then I called my, well, I called my youngest daughter's principal and told her to please tell my daughter 
that her daddy was okay because she was going to get home from school and turn on the news and that, that she'd turn on the TV and all would be news about this. And so she said, okay, I'll do that. And she didn't, hadn't heard the news herself. So then I got my third daughter was in college at Syracuse and I called her dorm and said who I was. And they said, oh, she's just coming up the stairs now into the dorm dorm. And she said, Mom, when she answered the phone, because she had just heard, somebody had just said to her, was your father hurt? And she said, what? You know, and they told her. So um, so my kids knew he was okay, and I knew it, so I quit being worried about that. And then, you know, the news started trickling out that the president was hurt. But I, I still knew Jerry wasn't hurt, or somebody would have called me by then. Uh, he didn't get to talk to me till six o'clock that night when he got when the president got out of surgery because he was with the president in surgery. Um, one interesting thing happened: the the doctor, the surgeon, looks around at Jerry and says, "I can't find the bullet. Is it okay to leave it in him?" <laughs> and Jerry said, "I don't know if it's okay or not." <laughs> he said, "He said that's a medical decision." And the the doctor said, "Well." I, re- I probably should get it out, but it won't hurt, I don't think, to leave it in there. And uh, Jerry said, well, we need it for evidence. <laughs> that was all we could think of to say. So the doctor kept working at it a little bit more, and he got it out. Um, it was in his lung, it, and uh, he would feel it, and the lung was squishy. It would just kind of move around in there, and he sort of knew where it was, but he couldn't pinpoint exactly what happened was the bullet had hit the car and ricocheted into the president's underarm as he raised his arms and he was being thrown in the car they thought he was safe because they had the door open and he was behind the door but it went through the crack between the door and the frame of the car and it was but it was like a dime it was smashed out because it had ricocheted on the car first so they were looking for something shaped like a bullet but that wasn't it it was shaped like a dime um so it took a long time to find it in fact it took a long time to find the wound jerry couldn't see any wounds and he wasn't bleeding in the car at first till he coughed up some blood um but that's because it went under his arm and when he closed his arm down it closed the wound and it was just a slit it wasn't a round so there's hardly any blood coming out. and uh, But it was in his lung, and that's why he was coughing up blood. And when he did, Jerry was first going to take him back to the White House because that was the safest place. But when he saw the oxygenated blood, he knew there was a lung injury. And uh, that's when he changed his mind to take him to the hospital. Wow. It was very risky, though, because there was no security at the hospital. And they didn't know if this was some kind of a plot, how many people might be involved. So it was a very yeah. gutsy call by yeah. by your husband, and he was the one that reacted instantly to get President Reagan in the limo. Right, and then he found out that he was bleeding, and got him to George Washington University Hospital. I mean, he he really saved his life. I, I even heard that his reaction to get him into the limo uh, that prevented you know president reagan from being hit by any of the bullets that were flying yeah, so he he really he, he really saved yeah right right so he really saved his life and and changed history 
Um, I, I mean, th- that experience for for your husband, I mean, it, it must have did it. Did he did he change in any sense, like after it happened or was it I mean, in a sense, I mean, he's doing his job, too. So in a sense, uh, it was just kind of part well, of being in the line of duty, I guess. Well, well, he had to appear before Congress and he had a lot of, <laughs> you know, everybody was interested in interviewing him all over the televisions and everything. But he. <clears throat> well, he already had a high visibility job and he was always getting asked questions about security for the president and all that but no this was like he he could be held responsible because the president got shot on his watch and at first no nobody i think almost never did anyone ever say that they all said he was a hero but in his head he knew he could they could really ruin him if they wanted to. And and he himself felt like there were things he could have done that he didn't do to have prevented it. Um, <clears throat> but the, re- the story, it's all so much in how the story is cast, I think, because I was sitting there at home. I got home early. They were still reporting the news, and then they reported the president had been shot. And then... Um, they reported a Secret Service agent did this and that, you know, and he's now he's in the hospital. And the reporter re- saying it said, we have the agent's name who pushed president into the car and it's Jerry Parr and he's a national hero. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, Jerry's good deeds have come home to roost because he was always very respectful of the press. He knew their role. He knew his role. He kept them separate. But there were a lot of agents, and they were used to this, who just treated them like they were the enemy. And Jerry always tried to find a way for them to interview who they wanted to or to be where they wanted to be, but he would set the boundaries that were necessary. And so all the press liked him. They knew they could work with him, and they respected him. And I think that was his those chickens came home to roost in a good way. I, because if they hadn't liked him, they sure could have taken the other tact. But the other thing that helped was Nancy Reagan loved Jerry. She thought he was a hero, and every time she saw him, she hugged him. And uh, she said, thank you for giving me my husband back over and over. And <clears throat> she could have had the other viewpoint, too. So... <laughs> He was uh, he was blessed in that respect. Wow, he was almost the perfect agent for that particular moment. <laughs> yeah. yeah, a lot of people said he saved the Secret Service because um, it turned out. Uh, okay, sorry. Uh, That's okay. <laughs> so you were saying a lot of people said he saved the Secret Service. Yeah, yeah, um, because. Uh, if the president had died, it would have been a different story, too. The fact that the president lived made all the difference. <clears throat> and Jerry would never say, I saved the president, ever, ever. If somebody said that, he would correct them because he would say, no, it was a combination of technology and other agents and the doctors, the medical professionals there at 
the hospital. They did they did a really good job. The hospital, the ER people and the surgeons that were just jumped right in. And uh, <clears throat> the people who took care of him after the surgery, he uh, he could have died. He came within a heartbeat of dying, really. But he had no blood pressure when he they took him into the hospital. He collapsed and he they cared to carry him. He wanted to walk in from the car, and he did. He walked in as far as the door, although the agent, another agent, had caught up then, and they were on either side of him, Jerry. And then he just collapsed, and uh, they caught him before he hit the ground. But the 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 ER people had gotten a call from the White House, and they were there with a stretcher and just took him right in there and ripped his clothes off him. And, you know, and then they couldn't find the wound and they didn't know what it was, what was going on and thought maybe he'd had a heart attack. And then some guy, one of the doctors who had been a medic in Vietnam looked under his arm and saw the slip and knew what it was. And of course, President Reagan, he was the oldest president up until that point. So having someone of his age, uh, being struck. Um, but at the same time, he was in quite good health. Um, oh, but yeah. I, I'm sure during that whole time, uh, Jerry was, uh, you know, a combination of the adrenaline flowing, but also, you know, genuine concern for the president and fear that he might be blamed for what was happening. It just, it must've been all the emotions that day must've been incredible. Yeah. And, you know, there's a contemporary thing right now. Hinckley just got released without any restriction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of feeling about that around the Secret Service. And uh, if he wants to show up at Jody Foster's doorstep, there's nothing that she can do. <laughs> Put a guard through his head. I don't know. Um, wow. He has no restrictions now. Wow. That's crazy. That's very scary. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No kidding. Um, Tim, now, oh, sorry. Mm-hmm. Tim McCarthy was the Secret Service agent who got hit that day, and I saw him be interviewed yesterday. I think it was on CNN or one program, and they they were asking him about Hinckley, and he said, "Well, he better not show up at my doorstep. I'm telling him right now, it's not a safe place to be." <laughs> well, at least he's honest, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, now, uh, at some point, uh, Jerry told President Reagan that, hey, uh, you know, it just so happens that your movie inspired me. So it, it, it sounds like he told him about it. Do you know about uh, what happened yeah. there, what his reaction was? Yeah, he told the agent, he told the president, you know, you were an agent of your own destiny. And the president said, what? <laughs> and uh, he's he told him about the movie and the president laughed. He said, that was the worst movie I ever made. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. So he, he even knew probably the irony. Yeah. 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 He didn't know it until Jerry told him uh, that he had seen the movie. And so it was a good thing. He made that awful movie. (laughs) (laughs) That must've been so interesting for, for your husband who, you know, remembered this movie that had such a big effect on his life and then seeing the actor in the movie become governor and then president. That must have been uh, quite a uh, maybe even surreal for him. (laughs) Yeah, the whole thing was surreal. I mean, yeah, getting appointed to be the head of the White House detail, he felt was kind of surreal. 
he had he had always been with VPs and their details were much smaller. Even as time passed, they got bigger and bigger. They might have 50 agents because they have to have three shifts and they have to have people who are traveling and people who are home and, you know, people who are going to the next stop after the next stop. And um, <clears throat> it, with Humphrey, they had 18, I think, if you can imagine. Um, but anyway, he said it was, you went over to the White House and it was, it was just an incredible difference. You know, everything was done for you. The cars were already, the everything, every all the arrangements were made, where you were going to stay, and da da da. It, it it was so much easier. But of course, it was easier because the country wasn't in such a turmoil, too. Yeah, and and he had seen what that looked like back in the '60s and the yeah. '70s. People ask me, is this the worst time ever in our country about the divisions? And I was saying, no, 1968 was worse, but now I'm not sure. Oh, boy. Sure. <laughs> yeah, that, <laughs> that's, that's a hard that's, question right now. That's uh, a sad state of affairs. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. And just from what I've read, your husband uh, just seemed like such a wonderful man, uh, a man of faith. Uh, I read that he was an ordained minister, faithful servant at his church. Um, he he had served in an organization called Joseph's House, where um, he he served those who had uh, HIV and AIDS. Um, he once drove a school bus more than 3,000 miles to deliver supplies for an orphanage and in San Salvador. So it, it just sounds like he just was really a, just a wonderful, wonderful person. He was, he was, we did a lot of that stuff together. Um, and, uh, we both worked also before Joseph's house. We were both volunteers at, uh, a hospice, an AIDS hospice in DC by mother Teresa. And, um, it was called the gift of peace. And, um, it was in a, former convent for nuns and but now all of her, her Indian nuns were in there with their saris on and everything and we would sleep there one night a week on Sunday nights from six to six and um, help help feed the men or change their diapers or whatever we had to do we did that was a really important stepping stone in both of our lives I think and uh and then we started Joseph's House uh, because our church didn't have a ministry to people with AIDS. And this was homeless people with AIDS who, I mean, if you're looking for the poorest of the poor, 
a homeless guy with AIDS, which was 100% fatal in those days. They were just dying in the streets like they were in Calcutta. That's what prompted Mother Teresa. She start, The first one she started was in New York City. She saw literally people with AIDS dying in the streets. And she said, oh, my God, this is supposed to be America. What is going on here? And they said, hospitals won't take them. Doctors won't take them. Dentists wouldn't touch them. Nobody wanted to touch them. They were scared to death. And they didn't even know how it was spread exactly in those days, but they knew it was prevalent among gay men. But, it, you know, later they found out anybody could get it and all that, how you get it. But right at the beginning, nobody would take people in. And so she started one in New York, and six months later, she started this one in D.C. And those were the first two places in the whole country where a man that was sick with AIDS could go just to, to even die. And so they were, it was a hard time and a scary time. And uh, we were a little bit scared, but not too scared. We, we use rubber gloves when we, or latex gloves, when we handle the men or handle their sheets or whatever. Um, but we found that, you know, you could hug people with AIDS and not catch it. And they found out pretty quick that it was in the blood and um, so and how it was spread. So um, nobody that we knew ever got it over there at either one of those uh, places, Joseph's House or Joseph's House is still there. And now because uh, AIDS is manageable with medicine, they have they take in uh people with cancer too, homeless guys with cancer. That's a wonderful mission. Um, and you and your husband, uh, you guys wrote a memoir together called In the Secret Service, the true story of the man who saved President Reagan. Uh, and so you you and him wrote it together. You were his yeah. co-author. Yeah, yeah. So what was that process like? I mean, going through all the memories and, and coming up with this uh, this book? Well, Jerry had a wonderful gift for conversation. He and he would say interesting things in interesting ways. So most of it is really his language, but I wrote it down and I had a master's degree in English from Vanderbilt and had taught high school English. So I knew how to get all the sentences right and that kind of thing. And the stories are told by him in his language pretty much. I did the writing, but he he did the living. <laughs> and uh, it, I was just looking at it again in preparation for this podcast, and it's really a good book. I'm thinking, wow, I forgot how good this was. Um, but it's good because of the fun and way Jerry would look at things and think about things. He had a he had a real gift for seeing pain in other people, I think because his childhood was so horrible. And um, it prepared him, though, perfectly for this work because he had to protect his mother from a couple of violent husbands. And he, uh, he learned how to be watchful all the time. He slept with a knife under his pillow when he was a teenager, thinking he may have to save her. <clears throat> not worried about saving himself, but saving his mother. And uh, he, so he somehow, you know, 
I would meet, we would meet somebody that was odd, and I would say, oh, I don't think I like her. She's really strange. And Jerry would say, I think she's in a lot of pain. And it would bring me back to, you know, compassion. Um, he said one time what Phil, Will Rogers said, he said, Will Rogers said he never met a man he didn't like. And he said, I never arrested one I didn't like. He said he could always see the human being there. And um, he didn't like what they all did. He didn't like what his stepfathers did when they were violent. But he tried to understand why, what their childhood had been like, or, you know, to look for their good points. And um, he really had a pastoral heart. Even when he was in the Secret Service, people would come to him with their issues about their marriages or their kids or different things. And he would try to give them good advice and made him think that when he got time to retire, he wanted to get some training in this because he didn't want to mess up somebody. And uh, so he, he took a, got a master's degree going part-time in pastoral counseling and Then he got ordained a little bit later, but he basically was a counselor and he never stopped doing that till the day died. So he, I mean, here he was with this career as a secret service agent, but I mean, he also, uh, you know, had this life where he was serving in many other ways as well and and making Mm -hmm. an impact there. So, yeah, and uh, again, for our listeners, the book is called In the Secret Service, The True Story of the Man Who Saved President Reagan. I highly recommend it. Uh, Mrs. Parr, uh, it, it's, it's such a treat to be able to interview you and learn about you and your husband. And uh, his courage saved the life of a president, a very important president, and that uh, changed the course of American history. But just as admirable... Um, you know, his, his role was in that and his career was, uh, is also just who he was as a, as a man day in and day out serving others, whether it was at his job or at home or at the church. And it's, it's quite clear that you were the remarkable woman by his side the whole time. So just thank you for sharing just all of your memories and, uh, about uh, American history and, and about your husband. So thank you so much for having me, Richard. This American President is produced by myself, Richard Lim, and Michael Neal. If you like what you've been hearing, you can help us by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our show. I'm Richard Lim. We're back next time with more This American President. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time 
you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts Podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.